Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Ted Carpenter takes on concerns about so-called designer drugs. Author John Goodman tries to lay out a path for health care reform. Charlie Cook tries to bridge the gaps between libertarians and conservatives. Kevin Dowd discusses the problems of bank stress tests. And columnist John Tierney talks about science, self-reliance, and liberty. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. This month, September, the Cato Institute will host Constitution Day on September 17th, and we will uh, be talking a little bit now about cases uh, that were recently before the court, implications of those cases, and cases that are likely to be before the court or are certain to be before the court uh, in the next term. I'm speaking with Ilya Shapiro, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and Trevor Burris, a Research Fellow at the Cato Institute and Managing Editor of that same publication. Welcome, gentlemen. So I think it's worth noting uh, out front that, again, and I, I don't think this can be uh, put, have a point too fine put upon it, but uh, the Cato Supreme Court review is a yeoman's task that is put together in a very short period of time. Cato's document is, uh, if not the first, among the very first uh, reviews, uh, thorough reviews. Oh, it's of the, the very, Cato it's the very first that comes out in longer than op-ed form. Absolutely, about <laughs> all, right, all these absolutely. cases. It would be impossible to do it quicker than we do it. Actually, oh, excellent. So, uh, and that that will be available. Uh, Published on September 17th. On September 17th at Cato if you come to Constitution Day. Otherwise, on Amazon.com and your finer uh, bookstores, it's uh, a few a few weeks after that. All right. So let's uh, begin uh, the, the two big cases at the U.S. Supreme Court in this most recent term. They've sort of been done to death in terms of uh, analysis and, and postmortems. But let's talk about some of the implications of Obergefell the uh, gay marriage case, and King, the second big Obamacare case to come before the Supreme Court. So, uh, Ilya Shapiro, to you, Obergefell was a case that was widely anticipated, uh, and the outcome, I don't know if it was a foregone conclusion, but but uh, give us a sense of what the court actually said. Right. The, the outcome was about as expected as any court uh, opinion could be. Uh, Justice Kennedy had already authored three big gay rights opinions in the last uh, decade. So it would have been uh, highly unusual for him to uh, do something different here. Unfortunately, Kennedy was all too predictable in that his ultimate opinion uh, was uh, sort of a, a bunch of uh, hand-waving. Uh, there wasn't much law to it. It was sort of uh, waxing poetic. Uh, and those who are in favor of marriage equality uh, you know, love that. Uh, but as far as the law goes, there's not much there. And so I think judges uh, of any uh, ideological or jurisprudential stripe uh, have a lot of room to, to make uh, mischief. One case that I've seen already just in the last few days uh, that, cite, uh, that cited uh, this ruling was involving a prisoner who wanted to marry his former guard. Uh, and the Seventh Circuit said, yes, indeed, you have the right to do so, uh, even if there were regulations violated in how that relationship began and so forth. But that is a fundamental right uh, to be able to marry the person of your choosing. Uh, and so that uh, you know, big, big wedding coming up in Indiana because of that. So there are, uh, though, related to this, uh, there are groups now pushing for, uh, in some cases, I, I think a, a hemming in or a reduction in religious liberty based upon this case. 
Sure. Um, it's not been, uh, there haven't been any changes in the law or uh, lawsuits that I know of, but that is a big battleground now. Will, say, religious colleges be able to maintain, um, if they have housing for married students, can they say no uh, gay married students uh, and maintain their tax exempt status? Or uh, uh, the, the, the proverbial uh, wedding vendors, the photographers, the bakers, and, and so forth. Can they get an exemption either under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, or its state equivalents? Uh, or should we have some new legislation? Uh, there's a, a bill introduced in Congress called the First Amendment Defense Act. Um, so that is definitely going to be a battleground uh, in the culture wars. And some people are concerned about polygamy as being part of this. I've heard a lot of discussion, especially on the uh, religious right who think this is a big slippery slope. It's not in the decision. There's many, 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 many more developments that would have to occur before polygamy was rec recognized. It's very easy to take a two-person union that was a man and a woman and all the laws that uh, deal with two-person union, including property and kids and how that happens if someone dies, what happens in the event of different things, and then apply it to a same-sex union. It's very difficult to do the same thing to a multi-person union and have the property go to, to two different people or have the kids go to two different people or three different people. So there are a lot more needs to happen just on the basic legal ground in addition to the fact that we would be polygamy is not a recognized protected trait and polygamous is not considered a characteristic like homosexuality is so I wouldn't be afraid of that if people are afraid is that becoming an inevitability based on this decision on the other hand there is a deep uh, biblical root to polygamy uh, and indeed if and when uh, this becomes a, a live uh, legal issue I only say that half jokingly uh, we're not really going to be talking about um, uh, hippies and communes, uh, those sorts of uh, people, if they even still exist, uh, uh, probably aren't the ones that are going to be trying to uh, get all traditionalist and, and married and state recognized and all that. We're, what we're really talking about are uh, fundamentalist Mormons, uh, Muslims, uh, other kind of fundamentalist faiths, I, I imagine, but uh, it's not going to be kind of a widespread societal thing. All of a sudden, polygamists are going to come out of the woodwork. Which is an interesting, again, it underscores the problems with the the non-legal clarity in Kennedy's opinion because he could have been very clear that homosexuality is a protected class and it violates equal protection, but he wasn't very clear about that. So we're still left with this gray area on how to apply it going forward. All right. Now, uh, King v. Burwell, the other big case before the U.S. Supreme Court in this term, uh, six to three uh, against those uh, arguing on behalf of King. So what are the implications of this? I've done a few events on this case, and uh, it's it's all the the healthcare policy people who can talk about what the implications are. You can I'm sure you've had Michael Cannon on uh, Cato Audio before. Uh, as a matter of law, I mean this is a, a ticket good for this train only, much like Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in NFIB v. Sebelius, the individual mandate case three years ago, was a ticket good for that train only. Uh, exchange established by a state can mean exchange established by not a state, um, but that's you know that that's not a long-standing precedent that we're going to see have a lot of legs. In fact, I agree with Justice Scalia's dissent where he says that basically uh, all the normal rules of statutory and constitutional interpretation go out the window when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, which I've now come uh, uh, come to call Roberts Care. Yeah, we'll have to see. I I agree with Ilya. I don't think that Roberts is going to generally 
changes theory of statutory interpretation into I need to make sure that Congress's will be done however I interpret it no matter what. I think this is a one-time thing only for Obamacare. There is an element of this about what's called Chevron deference and whether or not – because they did not apply Chevron deference because the court said it was too important of a question to say that we defer to the agency's interpretation of this, whether or not we can challenge certain environmental statutes or other things going forward because there are many things that are purportedly uh, given to the agency in deference. Uh, we could challenge and say, no, there's no way they wanted the agency to make this determination. Those cases are still are being brought and will, will continue to be brought. There were about half a dozen cases this term where one or more justices – uh, in, in, in their writings uh, through some doubt on the Chevron doctrine. And again, that's just to say that courts should defer to agency interpretations unless uh, of law, unless those interpretations are crazy. The, the technical legal term is arbitrary and capricious. All right. So uh, with respect to uh, Chief Justice Roberts specifically, what does this uh, say anything new about uh, his jurisprudence in general? Well, I think we talked three years ago, Caleb, and uh, I told you how my man crush was gone. Well, now it's it's even more gone. Uh, although you might be surprised to hear that uh, this term where Cato went eight and seven in the briefs that we filed, uh, not as good as the past years, but still a winning record and far ahead of the government. The government went eight and 13 this year. Uh, but in those uh, in that record, the justice that agreed most with Cato's position was Chief Justice Roberts. So um, yeah, I guess he just uh, – again, there's the, there, there's the Roberts care exception uh, to judging that he applies. Well, Roberts isn't a libertarian. He's an old-style conservative and uh, so we can expect in some areas that we're going to disagree. A, a judicial restraint and, conservative, yes, not an originalist. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we, he's still uh, reliably good on campaign finance, which is important going forward. So there are things we can, uh, we can still like Roberts for but I don't know what will happen if another Obamacare comes up. Uh, who knows? But it, it's, it seems based on the discussions that we've had and uh, what, we, what we know about Justice Roberts that he is very, very concerned about preserving institutions. But chief justices usually are more, more concerned than the associate justices. And he's not doing a very good job because as we've seen, respect for the court uh, has been dropping regardless of um, you know, a term that's been known as being conservative or liberal. But overall – uh, if you look at the general trend, Roberts has not been successful in removing the court from political processes uh, or in maintaining or elevating uh, public confidence in it. So I don't know whether that's because of this the this strategy that he's been pursuing or uh, other kind of atmospheric factors. But uh, to the extent that that's why he's doing what he's doing, uh, maybe he should try something else. All right. Going forward uh, into the next term uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court, Tyson. This is a class action lawsuit has and the subcourt has dealt with class actions recently as an issue right the Walmart versus Duke's case was the most recent case and it says that you basically can't do uh, class action by formula where you have um, literally millions of members of this alleged plaintiff class that have nothing in common other than that they're in some file somewhere in a, in a plaintiff's lawyers uh, uh, spreadsheet. Um, you have to show commonality and you have to show that everyone was indeed damaged. Part of the issue here in Tyson in which uh, Cato filed a brief in uh, just last week, that's early uh, August, um, uh, part of the issue here is that uh, everyone acknowledges that some of the people in the plaintiff class suffered no damages. That's not even in controversy. Uh, and so what if, if the plaintiff's theory of the case succeed, you're basically going to have some people who are 
uh, overcompensated. They're going to be compensated despite not suffering damage, and some people that are undercompensated. And the underlying issue is whether, uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, some people are, are owed overtime pay based on the extra time that their employer requires them to put on certain protective gear uh, in, a, in a chicken factory. Uh, so th that's kind of arcane, but the, the, at the end of the day, the class action point is can you just have trial by statistical formula where, as I said, uh, the plaintiffs are all very different and some of them didn't suffer uh, uh, hardly any or any damage. And there's always the underlying political element to these class action cases, which our colleague Walter Olson has, has written about extensively. The trial lawyers bar always would rather have a more deferential ability to create a bigger class because in so many different ways, these class actions suits just give them, make them a ton of money and put it to the corporations. So there's always this, under, it seems like a very, very mundane element of law. Do they share an injury? But ultimately, it's about a political uh, question that will probably divide the court politically too. All right. Uh, Fisher, affirmative action. This is coming back to the Supreme Court. Is this a second or third time? This is the second time and this is the, this is the problem with judicial minimalism. Uh, two years ago, uh, the, this case took forever for the court to come to... it was 257 days, which was 47 days longer than the next longest right. term of it a decision. Right. It took forever to decide what ultimately became a very short seven-to-one opinion. And what we've since learned from a book by Joan Biskupic about uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor is that originally this was going to be a five to three op opinion, uh, essentially throwing out racial preferences by Kennedy, who's never been very um, comfortable with them, but never slammed the door uh, on them altogether. Uh, ultimately, uh, Sotomayor prevailed upon Kennedy and Roberts to make it a narrower decision that all but Ginsburg got behind. Uh, but still, uh, the lower courts and especially um, uh, the, the public uh, universities have not changed their use of racial preference at all in light of this guidance from the Supreme Court uh, that uh, this has to be the absolute only way for them to achieve certain very important goals. Uh, and so the court is going to have a second kick at the can. I don't know if they're going to throw out racial preferences altogether, uh, but Kennedy is going to have to do something so that the, there's uh, less civil disobedience from lower courts and uh, education administrators. And this is all sort of baked in the cake from the 2003 duo of decisions, Gratz and Grutter, one of which said that a very, very defined plus system for race was unconstitutional if they gave you actual points, 10 points on your application because of your race. That was unconstitutional, but a more holistic plus system was constitutional. That was that ended up being so vague to apply for the universities that they're now being held to task of like how are they giving this one up on race to achieve what goal? Ironically, it, it allows obfuscation. It allows hidden racial preferences but not clear transparent ones. And the, the uh, deciding opinion, deciding vote in that case uh, in, from 2003 that Trevor just mentioned was Justice O'Connor and she said that basically, well, there's a 25-year sunset on use of racial preferences in higher education. Well, we're now 12 years into that sunset. Does that mean we're halfway done it? I mean, I, I, I don't think that 12, 13 years from now, the current defenders of racial preference are going to say, okay, we give up. Now it's uh, no longer uh, uh, constitutional. And there's a lot. Very very tea leave reading on this because they granted again and we, they could – they're not going to just go back and say we really meant it for you to look look carefully at this. They're, they're, they may not overrule racial preferences entirely. Or they may do that again. I think that's less likely than having them look at critical mass of diversity or other type of things. But it's a, it's a huge, huge guessing game about what the court wants to do with this one. All right. So uh, Evanswell, Evanwell 
Uh, what is that case about? This uh, involves the more than 50-year-old constitutional principle of one person, one vote. That is, um, you can't have uh, different voters have different power in the voting booth. You can't say, uh, well, you live in a rural district, so there's only 100 voters there. Well, that's you get the exact same number of state legislators as some urban district, which has 10 times the population. And if that's true, and that, that makes sense, you don't want to have uh, rotten boroughs, as was the case in uh, the United Kingdom years ago, where you'd have members of parliament representing literally nobody other than a, a hill. Um, if that's the case, and you have to equalize population, well, the question is, what kind of population? Because there are districts, and, and this is what this case is about uh, in Texas, in places where there are uh, heavy populations of uh, foreign-born people, either legal or uh, illegal immigrants. That uh, doesn't really matter as long as they're not citizens, as long as they're not, they're not eligible voters. And so the disparities between neighboring districts in Texas, where this case originates, is quite stark, uh, almost two to one in neighboring districts where, uh, you know, the, the stylized example I gave previously about rural versus urban was 10 to one. Well, here we have two to one in terms of citizens of voting age. And seemingly, if you can draw a line saying that, well, no way could a state uh, have a huge disparity, you know, 100 to 1 or whatever the case might be, then you're just arguing about how much deviation is allowed, uh, uh, not whether the state should be looking at eligible voters rather than total population. And as you might expect, these uh, districting cases would ult ultimately come back to questions of whether or not a Democrat or Republican will be elected in certain districts are going to be – there's going to be a lot of non-principled discussion about this and very political discussion about what is the best way of drawing districts. All right. So it, it, I would hope that the Supreme Court would be fairly reluctant to get into a case like this about state-level districting. Well, the, 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 uh, it's, it's funny you ask that. Uh, this comes on uh, a direct appeal rather than on uh, what's called a, a petition for writ of certiorari. That is – in election law cases, in certain kinds of districting cases, for example, in campaign finance, uh, they come from a three-judge district court, a special statutorily created three-judge district court rather than your normal trial judge, which then goes up to the Court of Appeals, which then you can petition with the Supreme Court to review. Here, uh, it goes directly. They, they ask um, whoever loses at this three-judge court, ask the Supreme Court to take their appeal. And the Supreme Court can either uh, affirm summarily without opinion, saying, yes, the lower court was correct. Uh, they can deny for lack of a substantial federal question, clearly not an option here where one person, one vote is so starkly presented, or they can take the case. Uh, and so they were sort of, uh, the justices were boxed into a corner. And there's actually another case this term uh, that talks about the nature of uh, how you get your case into a three-judge district court. And it's these kinds of arcane procedural minutiae that ultimately lead to big cases down the road. All right. Uh, moving on, uh, our, our last case we're going to talk about here is Luis v. United States. This is about the right to counsel and whether certain assets may be seized, even if they appear to have no known connection to crimes alleged. Right. So a couple of terms ago, there was a case called Cayley, uh, which asked the question of whether what kind of uh, processes do before the government can freeze uh, funds that would otherwise be used by a criminal defendant to hire a lawyer and otherwise defend themselves uh, against a crime they've been uh, uh, accused of. There, there was there are allegations that the the money that was that was frozen was tied to the proceeds of the crime, and so uh, the Kayleys lost. Well, here in this case, in Luis, 
The government does not claim that the money that's being frozen is in any way tied to the alleged criminality, and yet, nevertheless, they're freezing it, and uh, uh, Ms. Luis is prevented from uh, paying her lawyers. But by the way, footnote, don't worry about uh, um, uh, counsel for the, the Cayleys and now for Ms. Luis. One of his other clients is uh, Justin Bieber, and uh, I'm told that he can pay his bills. All right. So uh, there are a couple other issues that are uh, likely to come before the court, probably not this term, but in future terms, abortion, contraception mandates, and of course, NSA surveillance. So what what is, is bubbling under in those areas? Uh, Little Sisters of the Poor, which again is the, the best name for a plaintiff ever. Any, any uh, putative plaintiff lawyers listening to this, make sure you sign them up for whatever kind of case you might want to be bringing, um, are challenging um, uh, the same sort of contraceptive mandate that was applied to Hobby Lobby two years ago, uh, but here it's applied to nonprofits, not churches, but nonprofits, and they still, there's an exemption, you have a form you have to sign, they're complaining that this still makes them complicit in the chain of sin, as it were. Anyway, there's a series of cert petitions, not just the Little Sisters, likely the court will take one of them. Uh, various abortion regulations that have been challenged, whether they put a, uh, an undue burden in Mississippi and Texas, places where there's only one, say, abortion clinic in the entire state or one for hundreds of miles around, what kind of restrictions you can put on. Voter ID out of Texas, very contentious, very political. Uh, the Fifth Circuit, um, a rather unusual panel opinion, struck it down. We'll see if that gets it to the Supreme Court. And the death penalty is in play, especially after some heated uh, uh, dissents and concurrences last term. On the abortion case, we definitely have, I think, the strongest possibility since the partial birth abortion cases from the early part of this uh, millennium of revisiting what has become the standard, which is in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, of the undue burden. And that's pretty much where we still are with abortion, that the government can't place an undue burden. Whatever that on, means. Whatever that means. That's as vague as it gets. But they also don't really like to wade into defining that very well. So I think right now with the coming out of Texas with basically a decision that shut down every abortion clinic in Texas, we have the possibility of the court visiting this as this, what's the standard we're going to apply. All right. September 17th is Constitution Day, both at the Cato Institute and nationwide. Uh, please join us uh, if you can and get a copy of the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, uh, even if you cannot. Uh, Ilya Shapiro, Trevor Burris, thank you for talking with me. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, remains highly controversial and faces ongoing legal and political challenges. Polls show that by a large margin, Americans remain opposed to the law. The question remains, replace it exactly with what? In a better choice, Healthcare Solutions for America, John C. Goodman attempts to provide a way out of this healthcare quagmire. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. Well, let me lead into this uh, by pointing out that it's been five years since uh, we passed the Obamacare bill. And in all that five years, there's not been a single Republican on Capitol Hill who's been willing to stand up and say, you know, we have a different vision of the health care system. And here's our vision. And uh, if we had our way, this is how we would make costs lower, quality higher, and access um, easier. Um, Probably the closest to it is Senator Cassidy over in the Senate, but uh, he doesn't have a single Senate sponsor of his bill. So that's a pretty poor track record uh, 
for people who are representing voters who are very angry about Obamacare uh, and would like a different vision. So um, let me just go over real quickly why I think Republicans, conservatives don't have an answer to Obamacare, or one that they can all agree on. Uh, first of all, they don't understand what the problem is that needs to be solved. Um, even if we abolished Obamacare, we would not have a free market for health care. We would have a health care system that is shaped and molded by government policy. And the worst of those policies are policies that encourage us all to have group insurance rather than individual insurance. Those policies are tax law policies. Of course, when we have group insurance, when we leave our employer, we lose our health insurance, and that creates all the problems of pre-existing conditions. Then we're encouraged to have third-party insurance rather than self-insurance through health savings accounts. And then because the tax subsidy is open-ended, we're encouraged to over-insure. And at the end of the day, we have third-party payers paying almost all of the medical bills. And when third-party payers pay almost all the medical bills, then providers are not going to compete for our patronage based on price and quality and access. Instead, they're going to maximize against the payment formulas. Now, what does it mean to have a free enterprise reform? Uh, what it means to have a free enterprise reform is to undo all those perverse incentives. So for me, it's not a matter of spending. It's not a matter of government's role in healthcare. It's a matter of getting rid of perverse incentives, which cause you and me and everybody else to do things which make costs higher, quality lower, and access uh, more difficult. If you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to take on the tax system, and uh, change those perverse incentives that I don't think you're really serious about health reform. The second problem we have on our side of the spectrum is this obsessiveness about uh, repealing Obamacare. Um, for me, the goal is not to repeal Obamacare. The, the goal is to move from where we are now uh, to a healthcare system in which the role of government is, made, is minimized, in which all the perverse incentives that government creates have gone away, in which individual choice and markets can begin to solve problems. Then the third problem we have on our side of the aisle uh, is a failure to recognize that Obamacare has, in one sense, been a gift to Republicans and conservatives and libertarians. Um, think of Obamacare as having two parts. There's the spending regulatory part, and all that should be repealed. Uh, uh, that should all go away. That's fine. But the other part of Obamacare is the revenue sources. And two-thirds or more of the revenue so sources come from special interests who agreed to pay higher taxes, accept lower benefits, and other, other cuts uh, because they wanted to promote Obamacare. And uh, we're talking about over the next uh, 10 years, let's call it $2 trillion. So two-thirds of that at least is coming from the drug companies, from the health insurance companies, from the business roundtable companies, from the labor unions. And they all agreed to be taxed. They all agreed to take less uh, because they expected for some special interest reason uh, to profit from Obamacare. I'd say more than a third of the money funding Obamacare uh, comes from cuts in Medicare. ARP uh, went along with those cuts. And almost all these people are really not asking for their money back. ARP's not saying, let's undo this. Um, the, uh, the health insurance companies aren't saying that. The drug companies aren't saying that. Uh, I know of one company that told me that Obamacare is costing them a billion dollars a year, and they agreed to it. They promoted Obamacare, and I said, do you want your money back? They said, no, we're not asking for our money back. So what we need to understand is there's a lot of money on the table, 
put there by special interests, which if you like, sold you all out uh, for their own uh, special interest purposes. They're not asking for their money back, and all this money is sitting on the table. Well, what's a conservative, libertarian thing to do with $2 trillion? Uh, I would say it's to have a tax cut. Uh, but it's got to be a tax cut uh, tied to health care. I would like to see it be like the child credit, just as everybody gets you know, $1,000 per child. We all should get a certain number of dollars for health care and health insurance. And that's it. Uh, then government should stand out of the way and we let markets work. News organizations are trumpeting the proliferation of synthetic or designer drugs that produce physical and psychological effects similar to those of traditional mind-altering substances such as marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. Lawmakers have quickly worked to ban the substances that can sometimes remain legal with a modest change in chemical makeup. Is there a different way? Cato Senior Fellow Ted Galen Carpenter discussed his recent study on designer drugs at the Cato Institute in July. seems like uh, every time you turn around lately, there is a major news article about synthetic drugs and the uh, alleged threat to public health and safety. Now, my study focuses on designer drugs, which is a subset of synthetic drugs, artificial uh, substances that mimic the effects of, of traditional mind-altering drugs. Now, synthetic drugs have been around for a number of decades. Uh, we certainly am, are familiar with the uh, methamphetamine phenomenon in the United States, and that's been around for better than three decades. And if you go back even farther than that, uh, back to the 1960s and the flap over the use of LSD. So this is not a new issue per se. What we have seen, though, in the past five years or so is a new family of synthetic drugs. Those are the ones I call designer drugs. And there are two major categories. There are some exceptions to this, but two major categories. One, synthetic marijuana, often goes by the name of K2 or spice. And then bath salts, which mimic the effects of cocaine, and uh, flaca, F-L-A-K-K-A, -A, is probably the best known of that category. Now, as Chris indicated, a lot of the designer drugs are marketed as perfectly legal substances, everything from potpourri to air freshener to pet food, and most of those substances are explicitly labeled not for human consumption. Well, let's just say people have disregarded those warning labels uh, with a vengeance. Now, there's no question there's been a surge of use in so-called designer drugs. And the drug prohibitionists argue that this poses an especially serious threat to children. John Sherbensky, who is an official of the Drug Enforcement Administration, 
insists bluntly, and I quote, the biggest user population of these drugs are 12 to 17-year-olds. And his rationale for that is that because these drugs, at least until recently, have had a, an aura of legality and that they were very easy to get, therefore children were especially prone to use them. I was always extremely skeptical about that argument. Uh, for one thing, children, and usually by that we're talking about teenagers, have had very little trouble getting access to explicitly illegal substances over the years. If you visit any high school in America, I assure you within 15 to 30 minutes, you will know who the local drug dealers are. These students know who they are and can refer you very easily. And um, many of us can testify through personal experience that it was never difficult to get our hands on liquor, even though theoretically we were barred from access to such substances until the age of 21. I can testify my own personal experience that I drank more from the ages of 15 to 21 than I have since 21. So there's the easy access argument I think falls apart pretty readily. What about his argument that most users of designer drugs are 12 to 17 year olds? Well, again, we don't have great data on this yet. But I think it's pertinent to note that the argument that drug use, illicit drug use generally, is a special menace to children has been a, a common theme of prohibitionists for decades. They use it with regard to traditional illegal drugs. And yet the 2013 survey on drug use and health by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration confirmed the findings of earlier surveys that the use of marijuana and other illegal drugs is predominantly an adult vice. Well in excess of 80% of users are over the age of 18. And there is very little in the data regarding synthetic drugs, preliminary as it is, to indicate that the pattern is different with those substances. Now, I don't want to argue that the use of synthetic drugs is without its problems. Synthetic drugs most certainly have caused problems. Most of the problems are associated with two things, either questions about purity, questions about dosage. And that is a problem with all illegal drugs. That's not unique to synthetics. But users of synthetic drugs have charged that nobody knows what's in this stuff. Well, again, that is an inherent problem within a prohibition system. Prohibition does a wonderful job of pushing the trade of a substance into the hands of the most unscrupulous elements in society. It empowers and enriches criminal enterprises. 
And those enterprises are not going to be overly concerned, to put it mildly, about the health and safety of their customers. So, and this has been a problem with traditional drugs, not just synthetics, that you get a dose, you're going to use it, you have no idea how strong that dose might be, whether it might be perfectly safe or it might be lethal or something in between. And the same thing with the, um, the purity aspect. You may have drugs that are contaminated with other substances, even highly toxic substances. That is an inherent problem within a prohibition system. Prohibition certainly doesn't solve any of those problems. It makes them worse. And as with more traditional drugs, trying to outlaw synthetic drugs is a fool's errand. For heaven's sakes, we're not even able to keep drugs out of maximum security prisons. What are our chances of keeping them out of a free and open society? The answer is we have no chance of doing that. Then what do we do? Do we ignore the problem? Well, not necessarily. I think there are things we can do. But the goal should be to channel the trade in these substances, as well as other currently illicit drugs, into legal channels, into the hands of reputable businesses. And that means requiring standards of labeling and dosage so that customers know what they're getting. And then, as citizens of a free society, they get to make their own decisions. Now, people seem, at least a percentage of the population, seems to have a great desire to get high one way or the other. For heaven's sakes, people have been sniffing glue and paint thinner for decades. We're not about to outlaw those substances either. We certainly wouldn't be effective if we tried. So again, the focus ought to be on a harm reduction policy one that tries to channel the trade as much as possible into the hands of reputable businesses, guarantees accurate labeling and dosage, and then allows people to remain free to make their own decisions for good or ill. Nobody said the ability to make these decisions will always ensure wise decisions. That's a matter of individual responsibility. But the one thing we can be sure is that prohibition of synthetic drugs is not going to work any better than prohibition has with regard to alcohol in the 1920s or early 1930s, or more traditional illicit drugs such as marijuana and cocaine in the decades since then. We ought to at least learn from that lesson and not apply the same failed model to this new phenomenon. Mandatory stress testing banks to see if they can withstand certain economic shocks sounds like a good idea. The problem comes when the central bank running the tests face strong incentives for all banks to pass and all banks face incentives to take identical risks. Cato Institute adjunct scholar Kevin Dowd discussed the problem with stress testing on Capitol Hill in June. To start with, I would like to give you a quote 
from Ronald Coase, who died just recently. He said, in my youth it was said that what was too silly to be said may be sung. In modern economics, it's put into mathematics, and hence the, uh, the title of the paper, Math Gone Mad. And by math, I mean risk modeling. And my focus is regulatory risk modeling, and in particular, the Fed stress test. The main message is simply that, well, not so much that risk modeling is useless, but rather that it's worse than useless. And the reason for that is that the models are gameable. So you have the appearance of uh, you know, scientific risk control, but the reality is it's all a game to evade. And therefore, the, uh, the models provide false risk comfort. So imagine the following. You're the Titanic, and you've got a faulty ice you know, radar. It's better to put some guy up on the deck to have a look to see if there's anything out there. So it is worse than useless because of gameability and false risk comfort. There's masses and masses of evidence for this, not just one or two screw-ups. It's, it's across the board. And I would like to talk a little bit about, obviously, real examples. I'm a great believer in, in you know, let's downplay economic theory. Let's look at how things really work. So I'll, I'll go on to look at some examples later. So as a warm-up, let's look at the foundations of risk modeling. So the first assumption is the assumption of Gaussian returns, the standard bell shape. Now, some of you might remember in August 07, a famous case where uh, Goldman Sachs was getting whacked. And the CFO at the time made a complaint. He said, we're experiencing 25 sigma events several days in a row, really unlikely events. So these were likened to events one would expect to see one day in 10 or 100,000 years. Very unlikely. If you actually do the math properly, the waiting time for a 25 sigma event is 1.3 with, I think it's 135 uh, zeros after it. That's a hell of a long time to wait to see one day with such an event. But in practice, we see them quite often. So the number of particles in the universe is infinitesimally smaller. So some wits, I think it was Richard Feynman, said these numbers are so large that the term cosmological hardly suffices. So perhaps we should call them economical instead. So that's the first thing. Bottom line, Gaussian massively underestimates the risk of big losses, which are the ones that you should be worried about. The second pillar is the value at risk, risk measure. Um, this tells us the worst we can do if a bad event doesn't occur. You might think that's a bit odd. The worst we can do if it doesn't occur. But what about the bad event that might occur? Well, then you, you know, you're in real trouble. The third problem, which kind of captures the others, is simply that risk models don't work. <laughs> The unrisk-adjusted numbers work better as a prediction. Now, there are masses of evidence, other evidence I can point to, but bottom line is, why is this going on? Again, loads of reasons, but one that matters, above all, is that the risk-weighting system is being gamed. So no model can take account of the way in which people will respond to it, because the model is used to control people. People don't like being controlled. They work around the system. They game it. So you might ask, well, why does bad risk modeling persist? Now, this it took me an embarrassingly long time to understand this, about a decade. And the reason is very simple. Bad risk modeling persists because the banks want bad risk models because they understate their risks. And the regulatory system's captured by the banks, so it reflects what the banks want. So that's why it persists. So risk modeling is just a game. 
It's not risk modeling at all. What you're trying to do is you pretend to model risks, but what you're really doing is gaming the risk numbers. You get them as low as possible. And this game even has a name. It's called risk weight optimization. Get them as low as possible. The lower the risk weights, the lower your capital requirement, and the, the more capital can be siphoned off in bonuses and things like that. So the whole banking system becomes denuded of its capital. So the bottom line is capital regulation is used to decapitalize the banks. That's not how it's supposed to be, but that's how it is. And then when the bank goes bust, you just get a bailout and the game starts all over again. So you have all these problems and more with regulatory stress testing. Now let me make a couple of general points and then look to some specific examples. One general problem is that regulatory stress testing implies a risk management standard, an approved way to manage your risks. Now I would assert to you that this is inherently uh, self-contradictory. So remember, when VAR numbers go up, the banks are going to be pressured to sell in order to get their VAR numbers down. The problem is that what works at the level of an individual bank cannot work at the level of the system. So one bank can sell, but the lot cannot. The assets have to be held by somebody. So if everybody does the same thing, everybody sells in a crisis, then prices crash and the crisis amplifies. So the thing is totally counterproductive. And that is inherent to any any risk management standard. That's the first point. Second point is even simpler. It, uh, it's another contradiction. Central bank stress tests lack credibility because central banks have to push the message that the system is safe. I mean, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So even if they think otherwise, they cannot possibly admit it. Because in that case, people would say, well, you haven't been doing your job, et cetera, et cetera. And it gets very uncomfortable. And of course, the banking system might collapse. So the stress test then becomes a PR exercise. I can't overstate how important this is. This is like a Soviet election in which you have a fair election. The Communist Party always wins. You can only ever get one result from the stress test. So therefore, it's just a PR exercise. And you may as well dismiss it as such. And if you look at the history of these stress tests, they all give us the same message. It's always safe until it collapses. And then we don't know what happened. Are libertarians and conservatives just variations of the same ideological species? Or do they represent unique and separate philosophical traditions? National Review staff writer Charles C.W. Cook tries to find the answer in his new book, The Conservatarian Manifesto. He spoke at the Cato Institute in July. The, the basic argument of the book uh, is that Barack Obama has not managed to do what he wanted to do, and that this has provided uh, both an opportunity for conservatives and libertarians, also a set of problems. Uh, early on in, in Obama's tenure, perhaps when he was running for president even, he took a swipe at Bill Clinton. He said Clinton hadn't been a particularly world-changing president, but Ronald Reagan had, and he wanted to be the Ronald Reagan uh, of the left. Now, although he has achieved a few of his aims, uh, he hasn't done that, in my view. Most of his achievements have come by executive order or through the court. Uh, he's lost an unbelievable number of 
seats in Congress and the Senate uh, at the state level. And he hasn't managed to entrench in the American mind uh, the progressive disposition. Uh, the problem for the right, although the Republican Party has seen a resurgence in reaction to Obama, the problem for the right is that it's not as if anyone really likes us either. Uh, I say us from my perspective as a more conservative libertarian. That's not to uh, taint anyone at Cato with the right-wing brush. Um, but from my perspective, we haven't won because people have taken to the streets and said, yes, free markets, uh, yes, federalism. We've won because there's been a reaction against Obama. The conservatarian idea, which is in the title of the book, has come partly from that and partly from uh, another development. So I'm going to briefly address those. Uh, the first is that people on the right were upset with the Bush administration and with what Republicans and conservatives did last time they had power. Uh, it's presumed lazily within the media uh, that the Tea Party rose up because Obama was the first president, uh, black president rather, uh, and because Obamacare uh, came to the fore. That's not quite true. It started before that. It started in opposition to a Republican government, essentially a unified government, uh, that spent too much and spied too much and controlled too much from the center. Uh, we can cut Bush a little bit of slack because he didn't expect 9-11 to happen, but that doesn't explain, for example, uh, why No Child Left Behind was passed. It doesn't explain why Medicare Part D uh, was passed. None of those came from the invasion of Afghanistan uh, or Iraq. This has been a long-term problem within the right, uh, and the self-professed conservatarians were writing about it with that name, with that word, as early as 2007-2008. Uh, the second group of self-described conservatarians, and I see an increasing number of them, as you would imagine, uh, are younger people who are not progressives or statists, but who are not conservatives or libertarians either. These are the people who will say to you, when I'm around libertarians, I feel conservative. When I'm around conservatives, I feel libertarian. They came up with this conservatarian word. I didn't. It's not a particularly nice word. It's better than liberservative. <laughs> uh, but it expresses a, a dissatisfaction uh, with both sides. Broadly speaking, these are people uh, who are in favor of gay marriage, uh, who are in favor of the legalization of marijuana and possibly more, um, but who are not comfortable with the open borders position or with some of the non-interventionism uh, taken to extremes that you do see in some libertarian circles. And they've come up with this conservatarian label uh, to describe themselves. Now, uh, as you might imagine, that there is so much division on the right is something of a problem for it, given that it doesn't have too many votes to spare. The reality is that younger people on the right are staunchly in favor of both gay marriage and, say, uh, the legalization of pot, and a lot of older people are staunchly against them. That is to say, younger people sometimes vote on these issues, older people sometimes vote on these issues. What do you do? It's a quandary. Well, the central thesis of my book, uh, as a long-term project, is that what ails the right is in some ways what ails the country at large. Uh, we do live in a country now in which the election of a president that we don't like uh, yields a four- or eight-year funk. Uh, if Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, or God forbid Donald Trump uh, were to become president uh, in 2017, the left will spend a good number of the next four years 
on the verge of tears, as we have watching this president. In a country of this size, that really doesn't make much sense, and it's not how it's supposed to work. America is far more diverse now, not racially, that's sort of irrelevant to me, uh, diverse religiously, intellectually, politically, than it has been for a long time. Charles Murray just wrote an excellent uh, piece on this. Uh, it is the case that the Baptist in Mississippi has very little in common today with the hipster in Brooklyn or in Portland, Oregon, uh, bar maybe a common language. And yet we are centralizing at a frightening rate. At exactly the moment we've been liberated by technology, at exactly the moment that we've started to indulge more self-expression, we look to Washington to raise uh, and answer our questions. And my view is that the federal system, which is the, uh, the linchpin of the whole Constitution, uh, can, in the most part, there are a couple of exceptions, help us uh, to keep the country together and help people uh, to thrill to the same flag, however deep-seated their differences are. Now, I'm sure we'll come on to the areas in which that isn't possible. Uh, those are obviously immigration, in which you need one national policy, defense, in which you need one national policy, uh, and I think to a large extent civil rights as well. That ship has sailed, and it should have. But on everything else, there really is no reason uh, that uh, a educational transportation or energy or zoning policy needs to be run from the center. And for, for far too long now, and I indict the Bush administration in the book for this, we have come to see, on the right, I should say, we have come to see federalism in the way that many on the left see it, which is either as a way of uh, experimenting, using the states as laboratories, and then exporting their findings nationally, uh, or as a way of winning locally where we can't win nationally until we build a coalition. That, of course, is not really the point in federalism, at least it wasn't the original point. Uh, back in the 18th century, it was by no means assured uh, that Quakers and Southern slave owners and Northeastern Puritans could live together under one strong government. And so uh, they created a system in which they could thrive separately. It's okay to say that Massachusetts is a great state and that Texas is a great state. And I think uh, that if we are to continue uh, as a single nation with an increasingly atomized society. Uh, not just conservatives will have to take advantage of this, but everyone is going to have to take advantage uh, of that system uh, and return power as locally as is possible. Without personal responsibility, freedom might not mean much to many people, but control of self is something that must be cultivated. New York Times columnist John Tierney has studied the relationship between science, willpower, and freedom. He spoke at Cato University in July. The connection between freedom and self-control was obvious to the great libertarians who founded our country. On July 4th, 1776, as, as his revolutionary declaration of human freedom was being adopted in Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson took some time out for some less exalted prose. Um, in his notebook, he meticulously wrote down everything he bought that day at a shop in Philadelphia and the exact price of it, you know, like three pounds, 15 shillings for a thermometer. Now, not even the Declaration of Independence could distract him from this lifelong passion to write down everything he bought. Now, he was 
his, his obsessive record keeping was a bit extreme, and there are people who have diagnosed him with um, some disorders. But his passion, his passion for self-control, for setting goals, and for monitoring him, um, himself was common among his colleagues in Philadelphia. Now, the Founding Fathers believed in the unalienable right to liberty, but they knew it depended on personal responsibility. You know, during the Enlightenment and, and, and then and later during the Victorian era, people worried very much about the decline of religion and the decline of traditional social control of behavior by village churches, by, you know, by lords of the manor. And, and so people who believed in human freedom wanted something to replace that. And they realized that to be free from a tyrant's rule, men had to be able to rule themselves. You know, that truth seemed self-evident to them. Now today it's even more evident, although it has taken social scientists, those, those liberals in academia, uh, a long time to catch up with the Founding Fathers. Now, during the 20th century, as researchers studied the irrational and the unconscious forces in the brain, their faith in self-control waned. It was replaced by a faith in state control. The original progressives in the early 20th century envisioned an America that was guided by experts who would mold a new kind of society. They believed the future belonged to societies that stressed collective responsibility, not individual responsibility. Um, and social scientists were very eager to go along with this. They were basically the experts in shaping human behavior. They were sort of the new priests of this order. And they provided the rationale for prohibition. And when that progressive reform failed, they went on looking for all kinds of new ways to regulate the rest of society. Uh, the growing nanny state dictated which vices were legal, which temptations could be advertised, which medicines could be sold, which foods were permissible, which sugary beverages were allowed. Nothing over 16 ounces in New York. We don't allow that up there. But. <laughs> But to me, it seemed there had been this strange backward evolution. The old Victorian books seemed smarter than their descendants. And I didn't know what to make of this until I started writing a science column for the New York Times. And I met the social psychologist Roy Baumeister, with whom I ended up writing the book Willpower. Roy had been an early leader into the research in, into self-esteem, which showed that people who were more confident tended to be more successful in life. But then Roy realized that the researchers had it backwards, that um, self-esteem does not cause success, rather success causes self-esteem. Now when Roy looked at dozens of personality traits, he discovered that only one of them predicted how well a student would do in college. It was not self-esteem, it was self-control. Self-control predicted college grades better even than IQ or SAT scores. And it predicted lots more, as researchers found, as they studied people throughout their lives. Um, I'll give you a quick summary of two decades of research. However you define success, you know, happy family, successful career, good grades in school, um, good friends, however you define it, it correlates with two things, intelligence and self-control. Now, so far, researchers haven't figured out how to increase intelligence, but they have figured out how to improve self-control. They've rediscovered the concept of willpower. Now, scientists used to dismiss willpower as this quaint Victorian metaphor, you know, the, invented by these sort of uptight Victorians who had this primitive idea that there was some kind of steam engine inside your body that powering you um, 
uh, powering your ability to resist temptations. Now, it seemed quite fanciful, this idea, until Roy Baumeister, my collaborator, decided to test it one day in his lab. And he invited students, to, I mean, he asked them to skip lunch, and he told them to come to the lab later in the afternoon. He told them that it was an experiment in, in how they tasted food, which, as usual, was a lie. Social psychologists never tell the guinea pigs what the experiment's really about. Now, when the students got there, they, they were really hungry, and they would be greeted by, the, by this beautiful aroma of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And there would be a, a bowl of them sitting right on the table. And right on the table next to it was a bowl containing raw radishes. Now, the lucky students were told they could have some cookies. The unlucky students were told they had been assigned to the radish condition. No cookies for you, but have as many radishes as you'd like. Now, to maximize the temptation, you know, the, each student was left alone in that room, but the scientists were watching through a closed window. And they could see that these poor kids were, you know, that they agonized. You know, they would go over and look at the cookies. They would sometimes pick one up and smell it. But they all managed at least to resist the temptation to eat it. Then afterwards, all the students were given puzzles to do. And the students thought that this was a test of their cleverness. But in fact, the puzzles were unsolvable. The real test was how long they would persevere. Now, the ones who'd been allowed to eat the chocolate chip cookies, they typically worked away for 20 minutes, and then they finally gave up. But the ones in the radish condition gave up after just eight minutes. Now, that's less than half the time, which is a huge difference by experimental standards. You know, they, they had successfully managed to resist the temptation of the cookies, but that effort left them with less energy to solve the puzzles. So the old Victorian metaphor was actually right. Willpower really is a form of energy, and it can be depleted. Now, this sort of depletion happens to all of us all day long. Um, by tracking people from morning through night, researchers have, have, have calculated that we typically spend between three and four hours a day resisting temptations. You know, the temptation to eat, the temptation to goof off, temptation to fall asleep during an after-dinner speech. Um, and that's not the only way that you deplete your willpower. Um, after this cookie experiment, a young colleague in, in Roy's lab came in one day. Um, after the previous night, she and her fiancé had been compiling their bridal registry, you know, which towels, which silver, which place settings. And it left her feeling really exhausted, and it gave the researchers an idea. So they did some experiments in the lab, and they went to a shopping mall. And they found that the more decisions a shopper made, the less energy they had, the less willpower they had to work on puzzles and do other mental tasks. So making decisions depleted the same source of mental energy as resisting temptation. We call this decision fatigue. Now I'm going to try and clear your minds um, by giving you some specific strategies for applying the, you know, the science of willpower, starting with strategy number one. Watch for signs that your willpower is low. Know your limits. You know, there's no single telltale symptom of when your willpower is low. It's not like getting winded or hitting the wall during a marathon. What actually happens is that you start to experience everything more strongly because you can't regulate your emotions as well anymore. So donuts look especially tempting. Your roommate might seem especially irritating. Remember that every 
that every little act of self-control and every little decision will sap your willpower. So pick your battles. You know, don't make more than one New Year's resolution. You know, don't schedule back-to-back -back classes all day or back-to-back -back meetings. Um, in fact, you might do what the editors of the New York Times Magazine did after I turned in my, the draft of my article on decision fatigue. They, they read it and they promptly resolved no more meetings after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They just realized they recognized their limits. You can think of, of willpower as a muscle that gets fatigued with use. That's the bad news about it. But the good news is that you can also gradually strengthen that muscle over time. You can build up its stamina. And that is strategy number two, which is build your willpower. In one experiment, uh, some students were sent home with instructions for the next couple weeks to, to sit up straight. Basically, whenever they found themselves uh, slouching, they should try to sit up straight or stand up straight. Then they went back to the lab, and they had to perform a bunch of, of tasks. And, and the researchers were a bit surprised that this worked. This was kind of supposed to be a control group. But what actually happened was they were able to do all these mental tasks and all these other tasks much better. That, and these tasks did not involve posture at all. And then other studies showed that, that when students worked on one part of self-control, like controlling their spending, eventually, over time, they got better at, at other forms of self-control when it came to studying and when it came to their diet. So the research has shown that re really any repeated exercise in self-control will gradually build up your willpower. It's, it's really what the Victorians, with you know, lots of their little character-building exercises, they were onto something. That, you know, they realized that these little acts of self-control can build up your willpower over time. Now, there's also a much simpler and quicker way to build your willpower, which is strategy number three, eat. Um, I love giving this advice at dinner. You're already on the path to virtue here. Um, experiments have shown that simply drinking a glass of lemonade will strengthen and will give you a temporary boost in willpower. But the lemonade has to contain sugar. It doesn't work um, if it contains Splenda because you need the sugar because sugar provides glucose, which is the fuel for willpower. Now, experimenters use sugar because it gives a very quick effect in the lab, but it's a really quick up and down. And, and I don't recommend you try that at home, especially if you're in New York um, and you want to get a big soda. Um, the, um, I was, uh, it's better to eat foods that release glucose slowly, because all, all foods release it, and, and eat something healthier that does it throughout the day. But whatever your diet, you know, don't you know, make any, any big decisions on an empty stomach. Um, and, uh, and if you do end up in a position where you have an expense account, I, I think you should remember one of the most important scientific lessons of the past half century, which is that there is now finally a scientific justification for the expense account lunch. So strategy number four is to avoid the planning fallacy. You know, just about all of us routinely underestimate how long a job will take. This planning fallacy, as it's called, you know, means that a project typically takes twice as long as predicted, and, and often more. That's why many people, their to-do list for a week will have more stuff than they could possibly do in a month. And you're better off trying to you know, keep it to one, two, or three goals for a week and just stick to that and get, and get one goal done first before you do it. Now, even when you do set realistic goals, you still have to figure out all the little steps to get to each goal. And that 
is strategy number five, which is to make a to-do list that's actually doable. Because you want to avoid the Zagarnik effect. You don't want things nagging at you. And you won't avoid that if you write things down on your list that you don't really know how to do. Like, if you put a vague thing like, find new apartment, that's going to keep nagging at you because you haven't really figured out how to do that. You need to write something very specific like check Craigslist for listings or call Jennifer to ask her for advice. You need to make a specific plan, something you know precisely how to do, something that David Allen calls the next action. Um, David Allen is the author of a book, Getting Things Done, which is the one modern self-help book that I recommend uh, besides my own. The, um, and what he found, he was a corporate trainer, and he found that corporate executives were just getting um, swamped because um, they would have these grand goals, but they were just absolutely overwhelmed by all the little stuff on their desk, all the emails in their inbox, all the, thing, you know, all the reports they had to use. So he figured out this system for basically eliminating the Zagarnik, for making plans to deal with everything that, that crosses your desk and for keeping your inbox empty. Now, once you've cleared your mind from that, you can focus on the next strategy, which is six. Keep track, the way Thomas Jefferson did. You don't maybe have to be quite as compulsive as him, but, but monitoring your progress toward a goal is just as important as setting the goal. It's essential to any kind of self-control. If you want to cut spending, keep track of it. If you want to lose weight, get on a scale every day. That's one of the few proven ways for losing weight. Strategy number seven is what I call the nothing alternative. Now, it was inspired by, by Raymond Chandler, the great novelist and screenwriter. He turned out masterpieces like The Big Sleep by going into an office every day and following two simple rules. A, you don't have to write. B, you can't do anything else. And his idea was he'd eventually get bored enough that you'd have to write. Um, now, the nothing alternative to me is a perfect strategy for the internet age. Um, no matter what you're trying to do, try to set aside 90 minutes, ideally at the start of the day, to just work only on that project. No emails, no phone calls, no web surfing. And you can open the stopwatch app on your phone and just until it hits 90, don't do anything else but that. Um, this strategy works because it's, it's what researchers call a bright line rule, which is it's a rule that's easy to follow because it's very clear when you've crossed it and when you haven't. Um, and you can create lots of other bright line rules too, like you know, no Facebook, no Twitter before noon. Um, now, it, it does take self-control and willpower to start following those rules. But if you drop just a few and you follow them, eventually they become habits and something you start doing without conscious effort. And once something becomes a habit, you're benefiting from the final and the most important strategy of all, number eight, conserve your willpower. This strategy comes out of a study that didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. The researchers wanted to understand why some people had more self-discipline in their lives than others. And so they tracked these people um, all day long and compared them with other people. And they expected to see these really disciplined people using their strong willpower all day long to resist temptations. But when they um, added up all the data, they saw that these people actually used willpower less often than average. And they didn't know what to make of this until they realized what these people's secret was. 
they structured their lives to minimize temptations. You know, they stayed away from all-you-can-eat buffets. They didn't keep bowls of candy on their desks or gallons of, uh, of ice cream in the freezer. If they wanted to focus on a project, they turned off email notifications. You know, they conserved their willpower so that it was available for, for emergencies and for important decisions. And these findings, when I wrote about them, they inspired um, a couple of very different chief executives to, to make changes in their life, um, Mark Zuckerberg and Barack Obama. Um, each of them, after, after hearing about decision fatigue and what it does to your willpower, they both started wearing the same thing every morning so as not to uh, make decisions. One of them wore, um, I think it was a gray t-shirt and a black hoodie. The other one wore a dark business suit. I'm not sure which was which, but... Um, <laughs> Now, President Obama also started, he, he stopped making any decisions about what to eat. He left that to the White House chef, or maybe Michelle. But he was outsourcing decisions. He was outsourcing self-control. And you can do the same thing even if you don't have a staff like his. I mean, instead of deciding every morning whether or not to exercise, you can make an appointment to work out with a friend, so it's really not a choice. You don't have to expend any energy doing that. You can outsource self-control to, face, to Facebook groups or to apps that keep track of what you do. Uh, you can install something that, that turns your computer off from the web for a few hours a day. Um, I know that you know, these strategies, they may sound a bit Victorian on this idea of, of building character. They may sound a little tedious. But I can tell you that they really do make life easier in the long run. I, all my life, I had a terrible problem with procrastination. I, I never turned in a college paper or a New York Times column until the absolute deadline, if then. And, but when Roy and I wrote our book on willpower, I decided to try all eight of these strategies. You know, I, I watched for signs my willpower was low, and I made allowances for it. I tried slowly strengthening that willpower muscle. I didn't try dealing with big problems on an empty stomach. I set just a few goals, and I kept track of my progress toward them. Um, I blocked out specific time every day to do nothing but write. And I conserved willpower by eliminating as, as many decisions and temptations as I could. Now, the result, we finished the book two months ahead of time. Our editor, I think, is still not recovered from the shock of a manuscript arriving early. Um, I, I haven't either, actually. But um, now. I've been stressing here tonight a lot of the personal benefits of willpower, and, and they're quite real. But ultimately, self-control is about much more than self-help. Of all the findings in Roy Baumeister's lab, the, the most heartening to me is this, that people with strong willpower use it to help other people. They donate more to charity. They do more volunteer work. They use their strength, their inner discipline, to help other people. They take care of themselves and of their neighbors without the need for external control. You know, they don't depend on a nanny state to do the right thing. And that's why individual self-control is the ultimate alternative to state control. Human freedom is a social concept that recognizes the dignity of individuals. A new report co-published by the Cato Institute, the Human Freedom Index, 
presents the current state of human freedom in the world based on a broad measure that encompasses personal, civil, and economic freedom. This report is a resource that helps to more objectively observe relationships between freedom and other social and economic phenomena, as well as the ways in which the various dimensions of freedom interact with one another. Get your copy of the Human Freedom Index at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.